Omidika, Hari Mai, welcome and come with purpose to the Voices of Regen podcast. This is a space for unapologetically bold conversations about regenerative business. Uh, my name is Matt Sykes and along with Claire Wilde, who unfortunately isn't joining us for this episode, we've been uh, walking through this market conditions for impact uh, or market conditions for regeneration series and today we're diving into the depths or the labyrinth really of impact accounting and budgeting. We've got some amazing guest speakers from different parts of the world um, that will be contributing. Um, but before we begin, as always, we'd like to take a, a moment to um, acknowledge country or to acknowledge um, especially those ecosystems upon which all of um, the businesses uh, that are represented in this conversation depend, because we are going to talk about ecosystems and waterways and lands and skies and, and ecosystem services, which are all those things that they contribute to um, the work that we do. But we'd also like to acknowledge uh, First Peoples and um, in particular, um, the Mayon Baluk clan of the Boomerang and Bunurong uh, language group, which forms part of the Kulin Nation of where I'm coming from in this conversation. And also acknowledging the paths of the, the ancestors um, who are represented um, through the people that are joining us as guests today. So I guess with that grounding, um, I'd like to just do a little bit of a bridge because in Australia in, in recent uh, weeks, we've seen conversations around the Australian government's uh, budget for this year and Treasurer Jim Chalmers uh, being challenged on trying to take some more progressive steps uh, on on the framing and inclusion of different things like well-being indicators within the mainstream budget. Um, and we're also seeing within outside of government and industry groups and organizations this triple bottom line accounting growing and growing. And it feels like we're in a state of transition. It was something that in the lead up to this conversation um, with our guests that we talked a lot about that there has been a lot of progress and a lot of movement. Um, but it's continuing to evolve and, and to creatively disrupt, which is quite exciting. Um, but let me walk through some very simple bios of each of our um, guests today and then pass across to them to add a little bit more. So hailing from Brazil um, and based in Singapore, we've got Rosie Mary Portela, uh, who is a senior director at, Cons at the Conservation International. Uh, her work focuses on, on integrating nature's contribution to the economy into natural account, national accounting systems. We also have, uh, joining us from Bristol, uh, FTEC Director Ian Dickey, um, who has led development of over 60 natural capital accounts from farm to corporate and local government to national scale. So really breadth of experience you can see coming through in our speakers. And to complement uh, this, uh, on the north side of Namport, Phillip Bay, um, not far from where I am, uh, John leads uh, ERM's natural capital work in Australia. Uh, he's implemented over 100 natural capital assessment and accounting exercises and recently published a book, Time to Take Stock. So welcome to you all. And Rosie Mary, I'm going to pass to you first. Um, we'd love to hear a little bit of, uh, more about um, you and your work. And also in particular, like what was it that struck this fascination with natural capital accounting? 
what was there something in your childhood did it come much later i'm so curious to hear where it all began thank you matt it's a pleasure to be here today um so i am a senior director at conservation international where I lead our institutional work on natural capital accounting. Conservation International is a, um, one of the major global um, NGOs, and, uh, but we work very closely with the governments of the countries we, where we have offices um, towards the major goal of having natural capital accounting um, implemented and institutionalized as part of the government official statistics. So that's my work. Um, I'm not sure there was that aha moment, but I, as I reflect uh, uh, on that, I can say that I was a very quiet child. I was a very, um, you know, I have, I, I was always thinking and trying to understand things. Uh, that's something that I remember from the very early ages and, you know, thinking that when I grow up, I want to understand things. I want to understand all of this which seemed to me um, very complex issues that only grown-ups um, know about. Uh, and I think that has sparked the curiosity um, and the fact that led me to become a scientist and a nature scientist, an environmental scientist. You know, that um, you know, thirst for understanding how things work, the connections between the natural world um, and, and the, the economy and, and, and societies at large. Um, I think that's what drove me um, to eventually, you know, um, be, become um, that researcher um, and, and look into the, this um, incredibly complex and but beautiful connections between um, nature and societies. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rosemary. I can just picture you as a young, young child pondering the wonders in even the way you talk now. I just feel like, yeah, there's that little seed that that has kind of grown all of these years, but that inquisitive nature that's remained um, the same. Ian, I'm so curious also, you know, with sometimes it's not something that we're used to talking about in our professional context because we're used to getting asked technical questions, but um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you and whether there was any moments or experiences during your childhood that you think have informed where you're at now. Yeah, thanks, Matt, and um, pleasure to be talking to you all. Um, yeah, you made me think about this question, actually. So I'm a, I'm a bird watcher who did an economics degree, and I guess this is where you end up working. And I can remember as uh, the youngest child when I was probably less than 10, starting to really be able to identify birds, and my family wouldn't believe me. And I'd say, look, Dad, there's 10 of them. And they'd like, no, you can't see things that far away. And that frustrated me, and I, you know, and that pushed me on to be even keener to prove what I was seeing. And I kind of think, well, my job isn't that different now. 40 years later, I'm saying to people, look at the value there is in the natural environment, and they don't always believe you. And, they, and so I'm pushed further to produce better evidence to try and persuade them that it's there. So maybe my life hasn't really changed that much in the last 40 years. It's just the subject matter is, you know, economic value of the environment instead of counting birds. Yeah, brilliant. And isn't it so relatable as, as well? Like kids are are so switched on to reading and observing the environment. And sometimes our education systems can train that out of us, but it's it's beautiful to see when it does carry on. We often talk about ecological literacy in some of our episodes. Um, coming across to you, John, what what was it for, for you that kind of struck that chord around um, the space that you're in now? 
Yeah, I guess it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but I, I do think back, there was a, a creek that my, my friends and I used to play at near my house. And we, we always used to be fascinated by these, you know, freshwater crustaceans, we'd, uh, crustaceans that we'd find under, under rocks. And um, it was always why we went down there. And, and after a while, I guess the bit by bit, the, the quality of that stream, the water quality just deteriorated and they, they weren't there anymore. And we ceased to play in that, in that creek. And I guess this, this concept of, uh, of the condition of, of the ecosystems that were around is uh, kind of part of my work now. And, and I ended up, you know, getting a more of an economics and business uh, degree, but I've come back to this. And I think it's interesting that Ian and Rosemary have all kind of bounced around between this idea in these different spaces of, of scientific measurement and economics and, and biology. And yeah, um, yeah, I, I basically, I forgot that creek was there until until recently. I was just talking about it with, with one of my old friends. So. Mm, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Those formative experiences. I, I've got a, a creek that I grew up here as well it was called brandy creek and it experienced i guess you could say a similar process of degeneration where there are willow trees that um, were fantastic to climb on as a kid but ecologically they didn't provide the same value as some of the indigenous species but in the years since they've actually put some of those trees um, back and can see the habitat come to life again so yeah it, it's interesting um, those cycles that that we're grappling with and I guess it is something that we're going to talk more about. I, I know that um, we needed to recognise some of the, the loss and the damage that's been done because that's sometimes what happens when you, you, know, you start accounting for these things. But before we go there, um, we are going to go on a bit of a journey. So I want to give listeners a bit of a, um, a heads up, I suppose. So we're going to move between the realms of, of changing you know, our mindsets in the way that we under, understand economic systems. Um, we're going to talk about some of the systems that are in place when we, or can be in place when we start looking at natural capital accounting. And then look at different exact actors and examples that are happening out there before kind of leading to what we always do, which is asking our guests to put forward, I guess, some really practical and tangible um, actions and things that, um, yeah, you can do in, in your own work. But let's um, let's just ground ourselves. We've got COP27 and, and COP15 um, in the air. And there's a lot of emphasis on the science and increasingly the economics we're seeing shifting in accounting and budgeting systems. And as we, we've talked about, the natural capital and ecosystem services growing in uh, our awareness. But we do need to lay some foundations here. So, John, I'm going to pass to you. Can you help uh, um, I'll describe um, for us, what do we actually mean when we refer to natural capital? Natural capital can be understood, you know, simply as nature, which is what it is at its core. But the, the more formal definition that's most often used is that natural capital represents the stocks of nature and the flows of of, of nature into economy or into society. So it's those, those two parts, the stocks or the, the assets. And there we're talking about the actual physical ecosystem, uh, which, you know, a savanna, a forest, uh, a coastal wetland, that's, that's the stock that we're talking about. And we're also talking about the flows. Uh, so um, a, a component of the environment can leave an ecosystem and enter the economy. So water can be extracted from a river uh, and that is a flow or an ecosystem service. 
uh, that, that basically leaves that ecosystem and enters the economy into a factory or uh, into a municipal water system. Uh, likewise, we can humans can enter uh, a physical ecosystem uh, and experience the recreational, spiritual, or or intrinsic values associated with those spaces. And there are other kinds of flows where you where you you have more of a, an intercept. It's often called so uh, trees or, or vegetation can actually clean air, uh, and that's that's a, another ecosystem service that's provided. Or a coastal wetland can can mitigate the impact of a storm on a coastal wetland. So it's important to talk about those those two distinctions: the the stocks and uh, how big they are, uh, what's the quality of them, and then secondly, what what are we, what are we benefiting from that? Is it just these intrinsic values? Or the real um, things we're extracting that we're depending upon from those those um, those stocks. Yeah, I can already sense some of the people that are used to um, working with returns on investment starting to <laughs> grapple with this. Ian, can you help us build upon this? How do you, how do you understand the definitions of natural capital? Um, well, John's quite right. Yeah, so it's sort of nature, but it's natural capital is a way of thinking about nature as a stock of assets, as John says. Um, and if we start to frame it in that way, then you start to think about actually, you know, assets to something we want to have, it's a positive concept. And so you start to look at the environment as something you want to keep in a good healthy state. Um, not so not just so it can provide those flows of benefits that John was talking about now, but so it can keep providing them into the future. Um, and that's really important. So you start to look at a natural capital asset as something you want to maintain for future generations to keep providing benefits and, you know, relating it back to COP at the moment, um, keep providing benefits of a healthy natural environment to live in and keep providing benefits to contribute to a stable climate. Yeah, thank you, Ian. And Rosie Mary, I'm sure you've you've got your, your own unique perspective on this. Is there anything you'd like to add to help our listeners ground themselves uh, before we set off on the journey? Yes, um, I think that's a good segue to say that natural capital represent one of those um, measures of of uh, of assets that a country has and through which it can produce economic um, development and economic growth. The other ones that we talk about are human, which is basically um, the knowledge that people have, as well as produced capital, like infrastructure capital, the buildings and, and, and all of those. So all of those three combined is what we call wealth. And it's important for us to understand if uh, measures of our economic growth as measured by uh, GDP, for example, uh, are representative of our growing wealth or our liquid liquidation of their wealth. So when a country relies you know, on their forest and basically exploits the forest to the point that it's no longer there, as Ian suggested, as an asset, then we are degraded and we are borrowing from future generations. So in addition to looking into natural capital, um, we recognize that we need to look into this broad concept of wealth. Um, so in addition to looking to the measures of economic growth, we, are, we, we need to understand this um, underlying asset that, that allows for that. Mm. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's interesting as you're, you're speaking there, my mind goes towards countries that are incredibly rich in their natural capital, but then perhaps uh, in conflict with trying to find economic development pathways because 
you know, some of the ways to activate um, that wealth is through extractive means. And so you end up in this kind of catch where you've got this, this beauty. You know, I was even speaking to a colleague in Brazil um, this week and talking about these beautiful, you know, assets and, and things that they have uh, in the forests and communities making these products and things. But unless there is a pathway for them to build upon that, then um, the alternative, it can be quite dark. And, and I do want us to, to, to go into some of that reality for a moment here and, and, and put forward this question, well, what is the state of the earth's natural capital? Like, what is our baseline for planetary health? And um, I know that, you know, there's these movements towards becoming nature positive, but Rosie Mary, can I, I come to you, like, let's let's be honest like can you think of an example that that gives us a clear picture of of the state of natural capital that we have at the moment i i think it's quite troubling um but there's there's hope there's always hope i think with um that's true for climate that's true for um the convention for biological diversity um that is um coming in a few weeks uh, but the reality um, at this moment is that, especially from low-income countries, is that they are really degrading their wealth. And, uh, you know, the levels of degradation are astonishing when you think about that uh, wealth per capita is decreasing over time. Again, because um, it's being used, overused in a sense that it doesn't leave for, you know, it doesn't even keep pace with the growth of population. So that's just troubling. And I think what is really important at the moment is that we understand those trends. I think that's this first step in order to solve the problem is, is really uh, not looking, as I said before, into GDP, but into measures of that wealth and, and really understanding, um, you know, putting in place the policies that will allow us to keep that wealth, to generate uh, other types of, of assets and, and to avoid the degradation um, of, of forests, of fish stocks, for example. Um, so that's, that's the beginning of the discussions. And that's partly um, the government, of course, but the private sector has an important role to play here as well. Um, so it's a combination. And, 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 and also the financial sector, too, because um, investments are being made that really are uh, in, in basically not recognizing this um, liquidation of assets that, that, that we are facing. John, can I pass to you for another perspective uh, on, on this? And is there an example that comes to mind that perhaps gives us a direction of, of you know, an area that, that, you know, is really doing it tough in this area? Or, or an area that maybe is, is showing what's possible when we do start to value and, um, and, and make, uh, I guess, more aligned investments. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult, I think, to get your head around what these numbers mean. I mean, it, I heard read, you know, recent studies are two thirds of, of you know, species have dropped around the world, basically lost two thirds of our species abundance, something like you know, two thirds of the world's population experiences some sort of water stress once a month. Um, the, the one the one number that hit me um, less of a number more of a of a concept but um, we've actually changed water flows so much on planet Earth we've changed time itself so the Earth kind of spins around and and water just by 
by, by happenstance just happens to flow from, you know, from towards the equator, and most of it is in the northern hemisphere. So we've dammed and we've diverted so much water for agriculture, for energy, um, that we're holding water higher up uh, in the northern hemisphere, which raises the center of gravity. The way the same way that a figure skater raises their arms above their heads when they spin on the on the ice, Earth is actually spinning faster, and we've had to reset the atomic clocks because of that. Um, Think about that late at night. Um, it's it's hard to con to to really uh, comprehend the amount of change and the amount of impact we've had on have on the world, but we've changed time itself. Um, and and yeah, as as Rosemary was saying, that some of these some of these other factors of nature really aren't included in a lot of our business decision making and a lot of our economic numbers like GDP. Uh, interestingly, there's there's talk now of a I think it's a, a is it a, a G4 or basically the, uh, some of the, I think it's Brazil, uh, Indonesia, um, and the, the Congo, I think are thinking about forming an alliance because they realize that they have these huge stocks of natural forests, which are natural capital, which the world needs to, to protect these. Uh, and they have some value. Uh, and I think these countries are starting to realize maybe there's some, there's some political as well as economic value to be had in, in those forests. And interestingly, Costa Rica is a country that's done a really good job over the past 20 years, and they've they've really begun to to integrate and think hard about their their natural capital and protecting it. And they've they've seen a reverse in their decline of 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 nature. Um, and they've built tourism industries and agricultural industries that 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 build off of that. And it's it's really one of the backbones of the uh, the country's health, uh, wealth. Mm. You know, we were in, in an, uh, an event recently um, in some related but separate work um, where the United Nations are looking at effective multilateralism and to hear some of these alliances and collaborations that are coming out uh, that are at that biological and ecological kind of scale, it, it does give you hope, as Rosemary was saying, like unlikely collaborations and partnerships where um, these traditional uh, political boundaries and economic boundaries that we've set that perhaps sometimes are quite arbitrary. Um, it, it it does open new doors, which which is quite exciting. Um, Ian, you can uh, you can probably hear me me thinking here from if I put on the the devil's advocate hat, someone might say, well, okay, this is great, but you know <laughs> what are you what are your what are your systems here? Like, can you just start putting numbers to things and 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 how do you actually start to have some some definitions around the accounting methods and these different vehicles? Because having everyone start to do this is one thing, but having some agreed systems is is another. So can you help guide us through some of those existing standards um, that are being used? Sure. So once you started thinking about natural capital as an asset, then yeah, you run into lots of uh, management problems. But the good news is that we've actually faced those problems in other contexts before as humanity, and we've actually got the tools already to solve them. You just have to transfer those tools into the natural environment. So as we were describing, there's a problem that if you have your natural capital assets off a balance sheet, either as a company or as a country, uh, and then you find a way of uh, basically liquidizing them, destroying them, that gets um, recorded in the measured economy, you think you're getting richer, but you're not. You're just destroying your assets. You're consuming the, the family silver, as we'd say in the UK. Um, uh, so um, 
but that's actually the reason that financial accounting was first invented was people wanted to distinguish between their flows of income and their underlying wealth, the wealth that Rosie Mary was talking about. So actually, we've got these accounting approaches that already do that. You just have to broaden their scope a bit and apply them to the natural environment. Um, and, you know, some accountants, financial accountants take this on board and think it's a good concept. Others are, are more reluctant. And the challenge I put to them is to say, well, do you want to measure, you know, uh, the ongoing destruction of the environment really accurately? Or do you want to measure a more sustainable future, but slightly less accurately? Um, and we've got to have a bit of a broader mindset about that. Um, there's different ways to measure and value the environment. But what I'd say at the core of it is linking together the data. So you start with good spatial and condition data about the state of the environment um, in a sort of accounting terminology. I call that an asset register. Um, but once you start to have that as a basis for measurement, then you can build up accounts in different levels of detail, different spatial scales, uh, and combining, as I said, data from different disciplines to give you an insight into the value of the environment. And as economists in FTEC, we would put monetary values on how those changes in the environment affect people. Uh, but we also leave the door open to respect that there's other views of, of valuation uh, and that can be complementary. And there's never one monetary value answer to an environmental challenge. It's usually more complicated than that. And that's the same with other complicated challenges in business. You know, they very rarely make a decision based on just one number. Thank you, Ian. Um, John, uh, to give this some context is, uh, you know, the well-being economy is something that has come up in our podcast before. I'm curious to know, like, how does natural capital complement or differ from some of these alternative GDP measures, um, such yeah. as what Aotearoa New Zealand has been able to do with their wellbeing budget and other places like Scotland and the Nordics have been quite active in as well? Yeah, yeah I'm, I must profess I'm not an, an expert at some of those systems, but but know a little bit about them. And what they're what they're trying to do is 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 really measure on a regular basis, not just economic growth or GDP, but also look at the health of society, uh, look at the state of the environment with, with some, some measures, uh, maybe measure uh, uh, other social welfare or diversity issues, um, uh, violence, uh, and, and we put those together to give a, a much more you know, complex view of, of what's going on because you, don't want, you want those things all to, to move together, obviously. So I think I think the natural capital accounting and you know what Ian described there has uh, really been been codified in a couple of couple of acronyms I'll throw out at you. I mean, there's something the United Nations developed something called the System of Environmental Economic Accounting or SIA. There's another publication out uh, called the Biological Diversity Protocol, and in the UK, uh, Ian helped develop something called the the, the BIS uh, standard for measuring. Uh, natural capital for organizations. So we, we, and they all, you know, have the same same concepts. And by using some of those more rigorous techniques, what you can do is build up uh, a base of data about the state of the natural environment that really improves your ability uh, to really measure the contribution of of nature to health, to the economy, uh, to um, social welfare and, and a, no, a number of other things uh, and allows you to do much, much more accurate analysis so that, so that over time, I think those, the, I think those, my sense is that we'll, we'll see more of these well-being uh, figures kind of be complemented and improved with some of the natural capital work. But I think, I think Rosie Mary's closer to that than I am. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's start to, to go deeper into some of this government 
um, implementation and, and perhaps we can say innovation uh, as well. Um, and Rosemary, wh which governments are um, implementing the SIA, um, you know, standard of natural capital accounting? And is there an example for the kind of impacts it's having on decision making? Um, yes, uh, over a hundred governments are implementing some sort of um, environmental economic accounting. Um, some are, you know, doing their initial steps, and some are um, doing much more advanced work. Uh, so, what is important about the system of environmental economic accounting is that it is a global statistical standard for doing that. So, basically, this is aligned with the system of national accounts and follows the same classifications, terminology, and accounting rules so that we can generate measures that are um, robust and are comparable amongst different countries, much like we do with GDP. Um, so, you know, depending on where you are, you can already see some of the results of, of the accounts, the use of different accounts. And I think Ian explained that before that we start by looking to the, the forests, the different types of ecosystems as, as the assets, their condition, and their provision of benefits, both on a biophysical and monetary terms. Having that kind of information has so many different uses that we are only starting to see, only scratching the surface. They can be used as major indicators to keep track, for example, on um, change in forest cover over time, which um, as the wealth we were talking about, the stocks, of different ecosystems. They can be used to identify important nature-based solutions. Um, John spoke before about the role of um, ecosystems in coastal areas to prevent against the storm surge. Um, so we can use that to identify opportunities for adaptation. And very importantly, we can use some of those indicators also to keep track of some of our international commitments, whether they are within the scope of the climate with UNFCCC or the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, or even the Convention for Biological Diversity, which is meeting um, in a few weeks in Montreal. The hope is that with that systematic approach, we can measure um, you know, changes um, in ecosystems, changes in the benefits, um, and then, you know, ultimately inform a better, more sustainable development path. And, and whether it's infrastructure in Africa or whether it is um, you know, measures to uh, adapt and, and buffer against climate change, um, the sky is the limit when it comes to the use of the accounting derived data. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Ian, what, what stands out to you when you think about government action in this area? Um, well, I wanted to yeah build on what Rosie Murray was saying by emphasizing the sort of systematic nature of the data that's now being put in place. So 20 years ago, when I was starting working as an environmental economist, there were already studies that showed that converting a mangrove to a shrimp farm or subsidizing intensive agriculture was a bad deal for society. But they were just that they were one off studies. And that wasn't enough to change policy, partly because of vested interests and the complex of politics. But if we develop systematic data that people can really start to trust and compare, uh, and also that can be audited at a company or a government level, then 
you've got a more powerful data set to make those um, policy decisions from and start to understand how continuing to subsidize uh, destruction of the environment isn't a good deal for society overall. Um, there's one other thing that the standards bring with the with measurement. So when the uh, John mentioned the British Standards Institute um, natural capital accounting for organizations and an organizational level, it also asks you to think about how much you're spending to look after the environment. Um, which is a really important question. It's not just about measuring those flows of benefits. And you start to get actually a more precise definition of sustainability, which has kind of been a bit of a abused and devalued term over the last few decades in some ways. And that says to you, you know, are you spending enough resource now to look after the environment, to provide the benefits you want from it in the future? And if you can start to put numbers to measure and answer that question, then you're getting into quite a powerful data set. Mm. That, that, that intergenerational responsibility often comes up in some of our uh, the conversations with First Peoples um, being uh, an inherent value. And sometimes when, when we kind of hear these, uh, this, these wisdom and these strategic principles, the Western minds can find that very hard. But I, I think what we're hearing is some very, you know, um, more maybe more examples that are tangible for the western mind to be able to to grasp and to put some of that wisdom into practice in in some of these uh, ways and i just just want to point out you mentioned that you started in this space 20 years ago um so for folks that may think this might be a new conversation it's it's really not and and yet here we are and it feels like it's you know still trying to break through so um, I just I think it's important to acknowledge that this is not something that's just been pulled out of thin air. There's there's been you know decades of work going into this, and um, all of that pioneering work that is growing in in wider consciousness. John, is there any leadership um, that you've seen that that jumps out, and and even wondering how Australia fares in this conversation? Yeah, there have been quite a few organizations that are, or countries that have started to to use some of these techniques that that have come together. I guess twenty years of work, but then the last, I guess, probably two or three years, maybe five years, we've really solidified on the methods that that work and work well, uh, and and they're really being rolled out uh, in a lot of different places. So so the the EU is is doing a lot uh, with with accounting. Uh, the Netherlands is is one of the probably the leaders there. Ireland has also done some really some really great work in developing some of their initial accounts. Uh, here in Australia, or I guess Australia has has been a leader for a while in natural capital accounting. We have both a a, a federal level uh, agency, uh, the economic uh, environmental economic accounting uh, division, as well as you see states. Um, New South Wales, for example, has a, a number of programs looking just at, at natural capital accounting and, and trying to use some of these measures much more uh, systematically. And one of the, the one of the initiatives that has been launched on a national scale, I guess we have some a lot of work in ocean accounting. Uh, so there's some, been some good work done to develop initial accounts, pilot accounts for Geograph Bay in Western Australia. You know, how much, you know, one, what is the, how can you measure the condition, uh, the extent and condition of that uh, that that marine park out there, um, but also what is the what is the benefit to multiple stakeholders throughout Western Australia, both to commercial fisheries, recreational opportunities, um, uh, and the, the list the list just just goes on. 
And right now, uh, there's an exercise underway to really develop carbon accounts. So basically, a subset of a of a coastal account, of, uh, carbon accounts for for all of Australia's coastal ecosystems. Um, and those the 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 hope there is that that'll uh, begin to get some of the carbon markets to basically play in the marine space. Because if you think think about mangroves, um, think about uh, sea seagrass beds. There's there's a tremendous amount of carbon uh, opportunity there to really be um, um, held up and and basically stored through restoration and and conservation of those those systems. Uh, in the U.S., has been interesting in the last uh, 18 months, 16 months. They've really put together a strategy for how they want to do natural capital accounting. And I think what's what's worth noting on about their strategy is the number of different agencies that they're engaging on this. It's not just the Environment Department or the Statistics Department. It's it's I think it's 12 or 16 different agencies. And where they seem to be heading towards towards implementing this is um, having it led from someone inside the Office of Budget Management or OMB. And any new policy that's developed has to go through that office. Um, so the message they're sending is that we're gonna have someone inside OMB that's making sure that natural capital is included in all of this, all of these policy reviews. So um, there's a lot going on and I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface. Yeah, it's it's quite exciting. You know, I, I'm just thinking about some of the, you know, um, climate strikers perhaps that have been out there and advocating for change. And then uh, in, you know, the coming months and also the years ahead, they'll be thinking about perhaps what they choose to focus their career paths on. But it sounds like this is one of these emerging markets or developing markets, which is going to hold a lot of jobs and opportunities for for people. So that's that's really exciting to see. And also the different ways that countries are, are responding. Uh, I feel like we need to switch switch to another stream of thought here. We've talked about the government, but let's let's talk about the private sector and the corporate world more and, and let's look at some of the ways um, that this is manifesting there. Uh, John, if I if I come back to you, uh, what what kind of examples of leadership are we seeing? And um, yeah, I guess what what are people doing? What does it actually look like when you get down in into the operations of uh, larger corporations or or smaller organizations? Yeah. Well, I guess different different companies are at different parts of their journey, and there are different kinds of natural capital techniques. I'll, I'll start with some of the basic ones, and then move up to accounting, which is uh, the, the more complex ones. I mean, one one great example that I like to talk about is is Mars did an exercise. Uh, Mars, a the global confectionery company, did an exercise here in in Australia, where they they tried to compare the water embedded in peanut M and M's with uh, Dolmio pasta sauce, um, and you know which one of those is riskier, uh, or, or or which one of those is worse for the environment. Another way of looking at it. Uh, and so the peanut M&M, basically the, the chocolate is grown in a rainforest. So there's a lot of water embedded in that. Uh, the peanuts were actually grown uh, from rain-fed farms. So there's a, but a tremendous amount of water embedded in them. And then you have the dolmio pasta sauce uh, where you have basically it's, you know, tomatoes and some sugar uh, is, is the main ingredients that, that you're talking about there. Uh, and the peanut M&Ms have, you know, you know uh, the but you have to take a look, not just at the total amount of water that's in those products, but really where are they coming from? What kind of impact is it having on the environment? So the peanut M&Ms are all, are all rain fed. So there's a tremendous amount of water in those ecosystems already. And they're, they're effectively ecologically neutral um, because a lot of that water is just evapotransported again as it goes through the plant. 
but the tomatoes that are in the pasta sauce are coming from the Murray Darling area where it's an incredibly water stressed uh, ecosystem. Um, so they, they have tremendous amount of risk. So as a company, they, they need to say, okay, well, our risks are actually in the tomato sauce, not where we have lots of water necessarily embedded in our peanut M&Ms. Um, I think it's a real crisp example of really differentiating between, you know, maybe the total amount of water embedded in a product, but really where the risk is. Uh, another company uh, is worth talking about, um, a site-specific example, um, Argos. They're a, um, a Colombian uh, firm, and they one of their divisions is they they have a, a cement um, operation. Uh, and uh, they asked us to take a look at one of their sites where they were it's a coastal site uh, not far from um, from Cartagena, where uh, they had uh, a great site with lots of limestone that they, they 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 could harvest, and they wanted to know what the risks are. What are them? So we took a look at the site, and one of the things we found out was that there was a a, a wetland uh, mangrove, effectively there, uh, that they were going to damage one way or the other if, if they did uh, use the site, and that almost 20% of the of the fish sold in Cartagena on a daily, you know, on, a, on an annual basis was dependent upon you know that that mangrove, and it made them think twice about you know what are some of the social impacts and economic impacts if we if we do use this site. And they decided to find another use for it, and and now it's an ecotourism site. Um, so those are, are two concrete examples. And and Forico, uh, I'll just mention, is another company. They're a, a Tasmanian-based forestry company, and they have developed very complex natural capital accounts. They've taken a look at both their um, measurement of the the forests, their non-use forests, or their conservation forests, but also their plantation forests. And, and measured some of the, the water, the species benefits, the cost and benefits of those on an ecological basis, but also on an economic basis. And, and they publish those on a, on a regular basis. So they have some very clear, crisp natural capital accounts. And it has a lot of companies looking into as that to the, the future of where we're going to be going with some of the uh, reporting over the next five or 10 years. Mm. So we've looked at We've looked at food, we've looked at forestry, we've even looked at concrete. I'm never going to be able to look at a, a packet of M&Ms at the same again, nor a bowl of pasta. Uh, Rosie Mary, I know that you, you're familiar with some work that's been done in the fashion space. Uh, yeah, what, what's jumped out to you there? So with the fashion, and, you know, we can talk about one um, industry or one um, company that had a massive impact, and that is the Caring Group, uh, the parent company of groups like Gucci and other luxury goods. Um, what they did, um, and um, many, many, Ian is, is very familiar with this because we worked with them too during the development of the protocol, is what they call environmental profit and loss. They looked into their value chain and looked into how they relied on um, environmental resources or how they were impacting environmental resources from the perspective of raw materials or the production uh, or even the distribution and transportation of, of those. So all across the value chain, the use of water, the carbon emissions, uh, um, the water, the uh, air and water pollution, the waste, et cetera. So that was very impactful work and under the leadership of caring, uh, the caring group, then um, a group of other companies, the apparel countries, um, uh, companies came together and developed what they call the fashion pact. And that is their commitment to really invest um, in measures uh, of biodiversity conservation, ocean protection and climate. So there's, you know, they sign up for that and, and to, 
my understanding is that there's um, about 100 companies that have signed for the Fashion Pact, um, and we are working uh, with some of those. Yeah, Ian, I'm curious if you're involved with the same projects, and, and this was something that we would love to, to touch on um, more when we're talking about these profit and loss statements, people are used to looking at those from a, a traditional financial perspective. But can you elaborate perhaps on what Rosemary was sharing there and, and just explain for people in a very basic way what that, what that looks like? Like, um, yeah, what's a, what's a beginner's 101 to profit and loss for, for natural capital accounting? Um, well, in accounting terms, a profit and loss is yeah, your annual uh, costs and benefits as a as a business, and you extend that concept to the environment. So you try and measure the the uh, the impacts you're having, the the value of the negative impacts, so the value of carbon emissions. Um, uh, but then also there might be benefits in there. You might be managing some habitat that sequesters carbon, so that would go down as a positive. Mm. You have to measure those things in physical terms before you can put monetary values on them. Mm. So you start to require a, a kind of combination of skills and it gets the business thinking in a different way about um, how it interacts with the environment and starts to identify various dependencies. And like John was talking about, like where in your supply chain are the risks, not just the volume. So if you looked at the value of that water in the M&M's tomato example, you'd see very high value for the water in the, where the tomatoes are sourced in more water stressed area. And that's where valuation, uh, monetary valuation comes in um using economics to then show you where those highest risks are um it's a really interesting process for businesses to to go through so like we were talking about with uh countries needing to not just have it in their environment department but also their statistics department and their economic ministries the same kind of mix of skills is needed within a business so not just the csr environment managers who understand where the biggest risks might be but the finance team who understand how to organize data systematically year on year, do the accounting approach. And if you can combine those skills uh, and often with some engineers or some people who are managing land on the ground, maybe have the spatial data, then you get more interesting data sets that really allow you to understand yeah, your annual um, impacts and dependencies on the environment. Uh, and then also link those back to assets. So as well as a profit and loss, you start to get the idea of uh, an environmental balance sheet. So there you go, folks. If, if you are in that space of having your own business, there's some tips that you can um, rewind and then play over a couple of times that Ian's given you, um, I guess, some advice on how to get started. Uh, John, I'm going to come to you. Um, is there some tips that you might have for newcomers into this space about what they might be able to do um, literally in this financial year, for example? Yeah, it can be daunting. I think the main thing is just to get started, um, because the the fact of the matter is that these these issues are complex, and it takes a long time to to really change how a company thinks about these things and and really reorient your business. If you think about the changes we're seeing in in the economy because of of climate change and how carbon is being becoming a bit of bigger part of decision making, we're going to see the same thing uh, with natural capital. So I would just say start uh, and start with looking at, you know, where does your business intersect with nature? Where are you, where are you having impacts? Where are you depending on the environment? Uh, and then, you know, where, where, where are some of the risks and opportunities? And there are a lot of good, uh, you know, pretty easy to use off the shelf documents like the natural capital protocol 
and coming now something called the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. So th those two documents um, kind of go hand in hand, uh, but, but really is a, a good place to start with that. You know, what are my impacts? What are my dependencies? Thank you, John. And Rosemary, we started off in our introductions before the recording and just highlighting that really you, you are like a, a family in this group because you've had um, time to work together before. Are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share to that broader family of, of change makers out there, um, particularly those younger generations coming through? Yes, there is uh, tremendous excitement in, in this field. So for those of you who are considering your career path, please uh, bear in mind how passionate people in this field is. So we often hear about people disillusioned with some of their professional um, career. I would say I can guarantee you amongst my colleagues here, there is tremendous excitement and hope. Uh, and it's a field where you're constantly learning and you, you know, you're checking your assumptions and you're checking your um, prejudices or your you know, um, thoughts that, that, that might evolve with time. So what I would say, if, if, if this is something that you feel like could be a career path for you, I can only encourage um, you to do so um, because it's incredibly fulfilling to have that, that kind of mission driven uh, as a career as well. So those are my two cents. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Rosemary. I can see the gentleman here nodding as, as you say that. So um, I guess this, is, this is, has been a journey uh, in the way that we, we set off. And, and I, I, to be honest, in myself, am absorbing and processing, processing all that you said because this does feel like a labyrinth and a world unto its own. But there's a couple of things that are really simple that that jump out and and that is rosemary when you said that there are over a hundred countries that are already using the un system of environmental economic accounting it really put it into the picture of okay we're not we're not beginning here like um as you know uh, ian said being involved in the space for 20 years and and perhaps yourself um longer and and maybe similar for you john but this is something that has got substantial momentum. And we, when we do look ahead to uh, COP15, the Biodiversity Convention, which I'm really looking forward to att attending and, and to being part of, um, there's hope because there's so many foundations that have been laid and, and that we, if we can continue building upon those, um, then uh, I guess it just feels like one of those things that we'll, we'll look back and we're like, why didn't we do this earlier? And this, this feels so natural and, and so normal. So I just want to thank you all, Rosemary, John and Ian, for taking this time out uh, of your programs and off those profit and loss statements, but not, not the ones that we're use, usually um, talking about. Um, and just, yeah, thank you for leading the way on, on what feels like such important work. So I guess this wraps up another episode in this Market Conditions for Impact series that Claire and I are navigating through at the moment. And we've gone deep into the worlds of accounting and budgeting for natural capital. So thank you all again. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Voices of Regen. All the best.